the Mind Body Connection podcast. The body and mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Yeah, talking about stuff you can do to improve life, to thrive and survive during lockdown. If you're watching this on Catch Up, uh, then you won't notice that I've start, started slightly late uh, because my internet is broken. Um, but hopefully everything is working for you. If you want to leave a comment, please do leave comments as ever at the bottom of the, uh, the screen. Uh, and it'd be really, really lovely to hear what it's like for you as you watch this either live or on catch up. Uh, if you leave comments, then we'll be able to answer your comments. Uh, either if you're doing it live, you can answer them at the time, or if you, if you leave them during catch up, we'll be able to watch them back and then be able to answer in the next session. Or if you want to email them in, that's fine. The more comments we have, the better, because of course, we do rely on your kind of input to make this as engaging and interactive as we can. I've got a number of questions that have come. Hi, Tony, good to see you. I hope you are faring well. Um, considering the uh, experiences of the last few weeks, and Sharon and Fleur, it must have been waiting in the wings. Um, yeah, the internet stopped working, so hopefully it will get a good signal for long enough that you're able to uh, to join in. So last um, last week we talked about a number of fascinating things around um, dealing with other people, uh, and and other people are a bit of an issue because course we're stuck in four walls with other people or maybe we're not with the other people we want to be or we're going back into the world where we're going to, have to bump into the people that we've managed to avoid for the last three months so um, wherever you are you're going to have to deal with them uh, welcome Margaret and Sarah and Lucy as well uh, yes yeah, sorry I was late in starting and you were wondering if it was your problem it wasn't your problem it was all down to well not me all down to sky Quick little advert for how awful their service is. Um, so, welcome, Lisa. Nice to see you as well. So, who was on the call last time? Um, we asked you to spend a little time thinking about how you were relating to other people. Because one of the things we talked about. Cheers. This is uh, gin today. One of the things we were talking about last time was the magical drama triangle. Remember the drama triangle, those of you who weren't on the call last time may be intrigued to know about the drama triangle. Uh, and if you are, I'll remind you. So the drama triangle is something, it's really a really great way of thinking about how people relate to each other. So there are three potential roles you can be in. Uh, the first one is called the victim role. Uh, and it's not the same as being an actual victim, you know, when you're abused or, or hassled in some way. It's adopting the victim role where you kind of think, poor me, everybody's against me, uh, there's nothing I can do, I'm powerless in my life to change things, that kind of conversation. The second role is uh, what's called the rescuer role. And the rescuer role is not someone actually who's helpful, it's someone who spends their time overhelping, taking care of other people in a way that's relatively disempowering for that person. And so the victim often will look for a rescuer and a rescuer will often look for a victim because the rescuer enjoys the feeling of, of being validated. They get a sense of, oh, people will like me if I do good things. So often their sense of self-esteem is a bit wonky uh, and the victim feels they can't do anything and the rescuer fulfills the role of, oh, here's an adult who can help me. And the third position we've got, oh, 
loads more people coming on. Lovely to see you. Uh, hey, Fever Solutions. Uh, Jenny's got a broken sky. Oh. Uh, Aisha, excellent. Lovely to see you. <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, and then the third place is the perpetrator. The perpetrator is uh, the kind of bully role where you often they think it's because somebody in their own past, particularly their childhood, was uh, either physically or mentally abused in some way. And as a result, the work they feel the world's out to get them, the best way to manage the world's out to get you is to come out fighting. So to be on the, the attack a lot of the time. Um, so these are the three roles. So victim, <coughs> uh, where that's uh, poor me, uh, the rescuer, oh, let me help you uh, so I can feel better about myself, and the perpetrator, whose role is to uh, kind of tell people what to do and uh, hide their own insecurities by attacking. So what's interesting about these three roles is you can see people sneaking into them quite often. And one of the things I suggested we did last week was to think about where in our life do, you, do we see people like this who are adopting one of those roles? Or possibly, unlikely I know, but possibly where in your life have you found yourself uh, stepping into that role yourself? Oh, we've got some people trying to join us. Yeah, we just uh, put the little message and maybe they'll be able to find us. There we go. <clears throat> um, so the other interesting thing about these roles is people swap from one role to another very, very quickly, very easily. Um, so the the rescuer will will spend their time taking care of somebody. But the victim often, because their position is nothing makes any difference, is the, the classic state. One of the classic statements of the uh, of the rescue of the victim is to say yes, but. So the, the rescue will go. Have you just have you thought about this? How about this? I wonder I'll make you this cake. Uh, and the victim's response is always how that won't work. Yes, but. Sometimes what will happen is the rescue will just have enough and they'll go right. You know, I, just, I can't do this anymore. Everything I do, you don't even seem to accept or acknowledge. Interestingly, what they're doing there is they are moving themselves into a victim role, aren't they? Because they're kind of going, it's not fair, which is a classic victim statement. Now the rescuer, the, the, the victim will see the rescuer doing this and go, I thought you were going to help me, and now you're letting me down. And what, what the victim's doing here is playing two roles, actually. He's playing the victim, but he's also stepping into a perpetrator role by going, you haven't helped me, it's telling off. Sometimes then the rescuer will jump into perpetrator role and go, done everything I can for you, so ungrateful, people like you are just trouble. So you can see this kind of movement around and they say that everybody eventually ends up in, in, in victim role at some point. And what you need to do is to think to yourself, okay, <clears throat> what role am I playing? And uh, is that useful? What role am I playing? And is that useful? And the answer pretty much always is not, because what you don't want to be is you don't want to be a victim, perpetrator, or rescuer. And classically, we talked about last time, um, people on this call will probably have a lot of people who have a tendency towards uh, rescuer, because rescuers are very often empathic. They think about other people. They're very cautious about not upsetting anybody. Um, they want to take care of people. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's well-boundary, as long as you're kind of going, um, I'm happy to do this, not because I need to, I feel I care about myself anyway, but I choose to take care of, to, to support you in some way, not take care of. Because as soon as we start taking care of someone, what we're saying is you can't take care of yourself. And that encourages people to stay in the victim, victim role. 
Who knows people who are in a victim role or victim mode? It will be actually all of us at some point will all get to a point where it's not fair. Why is this happening to me? You know, even perpetrators move into victim role and they go, why is everybody against me? All I'm trying to do is just sort things out. Yeah. So who knows people who are in stuck in victim role or spend a lot of time in victim role? And do you recognize it in yourself? Do you recognize where you have been in that place? And that was one of our homeworks from last session. We thought, well, it would be interesting to notice when people are in that, in that role. But what about even better if we notice when we are in that role? Otherwise, we can jump straight into perpetrator by going, I think you'll find you're being a victim. As soon as you say that, you're taking a kind of perpetrator role. Or you could take a rescuing role and go, I think you're being a victim. I wonder if I can do to help you. So really think about it. And if you find yourself in any of those places, <laughs> uh, then taking a few moments to kind of go, right, is this familiar? Is this helping? Maybe I need to step out of this. Because they're not healthy places to be. Uh, and, and there's a, a another triangle, it's called the, the drama triangle. There's another triangle, which I'll look up, it's called, it's called the empowerment dynamic. There we go. TED, uh, where it asks people who are currently in a victim role to take on the role of being a survivor or creator, where instead of going, oh, so, so unfair, nothing works for me, to take the role of, okay, I need to stop that stuff and get on with it. I need to find out how I move myself through this. The rescuer moves from being someone who rescues you constantly supports you and disempowers you unfortunately at the same time to someone who coaches you who asks interesting questions so instead of going what you need to do is well have you thought about this yeah they go well what do you need to do i'm happy to to help you find those solutions but you've got to do the solutions yourself and then thirdly uh, finally the the perpetrator would move to a challenging position now not challenging us in you know constantly challenging people but encouraging people to be their best that kind of a challenge something that calls people to be their best uh, so we've got some uh, little messages here about people recognizing victimhood uh, um, so yeah okay, i'm not going to name names uh, but some people noticed it uh, and when you work with or, or try and work with someone who is in victim mode that constant sense of yeah but finding a reason why it doesn't work all the time. It's, as you say, very draining, very exhausting because all you're trying to do is help them. And then when you say, look, what's the matter? I'm trying to help you. They will often cast you as the perpetrator and say, come on, help me properly. You're just not coming up with good solutions. Yeah. Uh, recognizing in yourself. Yeah, very. it's a very powerful thing to do. And interestingly, we all do sneak into this from time to time. And as we're kind of ascended beings, People, situations will take us into these places where we need to kind of catch ourselves and go, you know what, that's not a very smart way to be. And in the lightning process, we talk about this idea of the being in the pit or being present. Being in the pit would be any kind of state, way of thinking, behaving that's not very life enhancing for you. And one of the biggest signs of being in the pit is a lack of sense of humor. And in the drama triangle, there's no sense of humor, you know when everything's unfair it really feels unfair when you're trying to rescue a oh, poor thing uh, or when you're being a bully or a perpetrator there's no sense of humor so noticing 
a lack of sense of humour is a really, really important thing to do. Um, and we got some questions about, could we use the do? Yeah, I mean, really, it's it's important to distinguish that. Um, so the do, for those of you who don't know, I've got a copy of the book to hand because I'm in a different room from normal. The do, there it is. The do, and I bring it out so you can see the spelling of it. It's different from the normal do, which is a do with an O. The do with an O actually is a way of being a perpetrator. If you go, I think you'll find you're doing upset about this with an O. You're kind of telling people off. But it's not that. The you of the, the do says, this is an unconscious and unintentional action or behaviour you're involved in. You don't mean to. It's not your fault in any way at all. But it is going on in your nervous system. So if you can get someone who's doing victim or being a victim place, if you can really get them to kind of go, oh, hold on a minute, I am operating in a certain way in the world that's not really working for me. I'm, and I'm quite good at that. <laughs> I wonder if I could learn to do something different. That would be the use of the do. Uh, oh, thank you, Aisha. It's very kind of you to say something nice about my book. Um, Explain to people who are being victims of COVID to get a better position to take responsibility for them, uh, better focusing, uh, focusing on things rather than focusing on the negatives. Yeah, um, the, the big problem you've got is as soon as you start to kind of have conversations, and this happens with the lightning process, it's one of the things that people um, mistakenly attack us and lots of other approaches for. Uh, when they decide to misunderstand, when we say, look, there's stuff you can do to make a difference, which is a, which is a great question. That's a, it's a great position to come from. There is things that you can do that will allow you to exert some empowering influence in your life. That's a lovely thing to hear, or should be. Uh, but some people, that makes them have to step out of that victim role, doesn't it? It's like, well, there's stuff I need to do. The victims, that's not what they do. They don't do stuff, they wait for people to come by and rescue them. So we're asking them with those kind of conversations, and same with mindfulness. Mindfulness says, you know, it's your mind, yeah, it does lots of weird things. You ask it to think about, you know, a, a river running slowly through the mountains and you start thinking about your cat and you're disappearing. And then what do you need to do? You need to take responsibility and influence and steer your mind back to the mountain stream. Yeah? Nobody else can do that for you, and there's no point in complaining how hard it is. It's irrelevant whether it's hard or easy. The question is, what is going to make that successful? And it's going to be you deciding to focus on so many other things. Uh, you know, losing weight is a great example, isn't it? You know, uh, if, if you go to a, some kind of club that helps you to lose weight, they'll, they'll probably give you a relatively decent plan, which will involve reducing your calories and in increasing your exercise. And if you do that consistently, you will make some kind of change. It's just the physics of it, really. But you'll need to do that. You'll need to follow that through. It doesn't happen by itself. So that whole sense of taking responsibility is, is really essential in so many places, but it's easily shifted for people saying, um, are you saying it's my fault I'm this way? You know. Don't give me a hard time, I'm ill. That's a real kind of victim position that people can step into and get why they do it, but it's not very useful for them. So being in the victim role is very familiar, so that's where the do would come in, something we do without even thinking about it. But we uh, we can step into it too much. Oh, my brilliant friend Nick from Greece is here. Hello, Nick. I was really fascinated by Nick. Check him out. Uh, one of the many amazing things about Nick is he's a, 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 he's a criminologist. 
that looks at profiling. He's talking about all sorts of crazy serial killers at the moment at the university. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, we've got oh, we got Nick having a comment here. I'll read what he says in a minute. Uh, people recommending the book. Thanks, guys. There's a tenor in the post for you. Um, uh, so we create dissociated states in order to defocus on them and let them entertain new possibilities. Yes, absolutely. So if we stay in victim role, we can only perceive the world from that filter experience where every help that's given is is like uh, not good enough. Um, it's not our responsibility, it's nothing to do with us that we're stuck in this way. And we've all been that way. We've all at some point in our lives been in that victim place where, you know, maybe with your mum or your kids, where they say something, uh, you know, when you're young and you go, it's just not fair. That's really the position that we're in. And it really feels that way. And so any help given will be heard through that context and rejected. You know, yes, but. We have to step beyond, we have to step away from that space where we're seeing the world in that way and, and really be able to see it, just about on camera, see it in a different position, from a different place. So NLP is very, very interesting, this idea of spatial relocation where you see things from a different angle. Classic thing to do, uh, is the book available, audio version or ebook? It is, I'm pretty sure it's uh, available on Kindle. Uh, yes, you can get it on Kindle. Um, Excellent. Uh, I sent you an answer to that, Lotte. Did, did you read it? Oh, you did. Excellent. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute then. That's about acceptance. Um, well, what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, sometimes you just need to tell people to buck up, says Renara. <laughs> kind of, yeah, but nobody's going to hear that. What really needs to happen is they need to tell themselves. And there was a brilliant thing I read, I can't remember where I read it, but I talked about it last week, uh, which, I, which I posted again, because I thought it was very smart, um, which was about how to help someone to change from being victim. And it said three points. First of all, listen to them. So spend some time listening. Hear them, but without agreeing. So the victim will try and encourage you into this, the world is this way, it's so unfair. And that, and that will be, very compelling uh, narrative and to just kind of go I really get that yeah but not go and it's true because as soon as you do it you're colluding with them and then this really nice phrase uh, which I picked up on the internet I to find out where it came from because it was, it was I'm, I'm, I think it's a very nice way of saying this the phrase given that okay so you say to somebody who, who's gone on about how awful everything is from this victim position, but they're, they're kind of, there's a little light that they may want to change. You would say to them, given that the situation is terrible and no one likes you and the world seems to conspire against you and there is no end in sight. So agreeing, those of you who know about Ericsson's and my friend John approach actually, uh, uh, and there is no end in sight. Given all that, who do you want to be in spite of that? So it's, it's agreeing that all those perspectives they have are their perspectives, we're not denying them, but we're saying, given that is the way, how or who do you want to be? And that's a very interesting way of dealing with it. Because the only real solution for victim is for that person to choose to move out of that position. And that position is very familiar. It's not very comfortable, but it's very familiar. So what else have we got? Interesting questions. Uh, question about acceptance. Um, 
Okay, so how do we how do we work with the repressed emotions like anger and sadness? Hmm. Well, there's some interesting um, parts to that conversation. It's a bit too deep, I think, for what we're going to be talking about today. One of the questions is about repressed emotions. So there's a whole conversation about do we really have anger stored within us? Or is anger actually something that we generate and regenerate and regenerate? So if, for instance, you think about this very nice little piece of pottery, I'll just show you this. Isn't that nice? came from my uh, great aunt. Now, as you look at that and you look at the beautiful work on it, then that will be your focus. You won't be thinking about your anger. And in that moment, where is your anger? Well, the argument is either you parked it over there somewhere or it doesn't exist. Uh, and we need to move towards different ways of thinking about emotions, not thinking of them as things. They don't really exist in that way. They are neurological potentials. And the question is, are we triggering them or not? How often do we do that? Now, it's true that events from our past can certainly shape how our neurology is and how we relate to people. But one of our jobs probably is to clear up some of that stuff, to kind of go, right, what has caused this? And how can I step away from the crappy childhood I have and be the person I want to be, not to be trapped by our past experiences? And there's lots of techniques that you can do to work on that. But, but one of the things I would come back to is this, this thing I talked about, the pit and the present. Question to ask yourself, really important question to ask yourself, and quite actually a deep spiritual question really, is, is where my focus is now life enhancing? Is the state I'm in, the way I'm thinking, my focus of attention, is that life enhancing? And Buddhism says something similar. It says something like, is what what you're doing your actions are they increasing compassion or suffering in the world <clears throat> um so then we've got some questions here um if we don't bottle, bottle anger then why do people explode with rage when they have feelings in their mind and bottle up their feelings if you if you don't resolve your stuff it's not saying don't sort out your stuff if you've got stuff going on, then you need to resolve, you need to find a way through it. But anger doesn't exist. It's not like bottled up. It's not like that. It doesn't occur in that way. You can't go to the shops and buy more. It's, it's a process that we're engaged in. But of course, if we engage in that process again and again and again, then through the process of neuroplasticity, which is the more we use a pathway, the stronger that pathway will get and the more likely we'll trigger that in the slightest moment. And that's why people get themselves into emotional states that are very familiar, because neuro neurologically, the more you spend time in that state, the stronger those pathways are, and the easier it is to switch it on. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much, I would really move away from the idea of it's the anger bottled up inside you, that's more you've trained yourself into, and without meaning to, trained yourself into these pathways, which are very, very active. And as a result, it gives you more options as to what you have to do. If we go with the model of your anger is bottled up inside you, then you need someone to siphon that off for you because it exists as a thing, as an object. 
And those of you who know about NLP or, or linguistics will, will recognize it's been nominalized. It's changed from a verb, which is what it really is, a process, a, a neurotransmitters, if you wish, an electrical signal process, the activation of certain pathways. We've moved it from that into a solidified thing of anger, a bottle of anger. And that's just not accurate. It's not what it is. It feels like that, but that's not actually what's going on in our nervous system. And if we can free ourselves from that conceptual structure where the anger is there and to go, no, it's something I'm engaged with, or as we say, something I'm doing unconscious, unconsciously and unintentionally, then we have a chance to kind of go, well, if I'm generating this without knowing how, maybe there's a way for me to not generate that and to learn to be some other way. We've got some other questions here. Uh, notice I tend to gravitate, gravitate towards the rescue position. How can I step away from that position? And is one always in this state? So, um, as I said, a lot of people who are on the call is is noticing themselves in rescuing position. It's very common, particularly people care, you know, and we, we've kind of misunderstood caring for people as taking care of them. And sometimes, yeah, we do need to take care of people when they're ill and young and unable. But we need to recognize who it is that really needs that kind of care and who it is who actually needs to learn to stand on their own two feet. You know, imagine you learn to drive. You know, your driving instructor is there to help you to drive. Once you pass your test, if he keeps on getting in your car, you go, what are you doing here? You know, it's not, I'm passed now. He goes, I'm just going to check on you. No, I'm now passed. I don't need you in the car. Or if you're riding a bicycle and you're learning a kid to ride a bicycle and you hold on to the saddle and you chase them down the path, after a while, it's time to let go. It's really important to do that. Otherwise, they will never learn to ride the bicycle on their own. Uh, oh, we've got Renara, an ex-rescuer. <laughs> uh, generally very positive in my thoughts and emotions. During the daytime, but at night, I have devastating emotions that I believe haven't been resolved. Permanent cramp in my stomach. Um, even there during my sleep, can I help? Um, yes, yes, you can help yourself. Uh, there are lots of things you can do. It's, it's an interesting one because, of course, when we sleep, we can't be responsible for the state that we're in. You know, uh, who here has ever had dreams where they do naughty things like, uh, cheat on their partner or rob a bank or kill someone. That's my average dream, um, not my daydream. And those kind of things happen. Uh, and we can't be responsible for them. It's just our unconscious mind doing stuff. It's also true that when we're asleep, our mind does all sorts of other stuff. And sometimes it can run patterns. Um, and there's another seminar I did all about sleep. Patterns that we didn't resolve during the day. So if we spent a lot of time being stressed or not enough time sorting out our to-do list, our brain can start running that. And certainly um, just before we wake up, we have a spike of cortisol and adrenaline, which is designed to make us work, wake up like a meerkat and be uh, on it. If when you go to bed, your adrenaline is quite high. And when you fall asleep, you have crazy dreams. And then when you wake up, you quite wake up, often wake up in a bad state as well. Is there stuff you can do about it? Yes, there is. There's lots of, lots of stuff you can do to resolve stress in the day and to also work with some of the unconscious processes that are probably driving that. Uh, Tony loves my picture of a dam me being a damsel in distress. <laughs> it's funny because a few weeks ago, people really enjoyed me being a squirrel. Um, 
for and beaks is definitely a rescuer um okay what else have we got here uh how can i transform perfectionism many of you will know i've talked about perfectionism a lot and in fact i'm going to talk about something very much linked to perfectionism and linked to the drama triangle which is codependency um so transforming perfectionism what is the one thing you can't have if you have perfectionism people should know uh, if they've ever watched me talking about this before uh, the answer is joy you can't have perfectionism and joy this is not possible because when you run perfectionism everything is never quite good enough and it's not a great place to be so you want to be asking yourself okay which one do i want we've got lost in thinking the idea that doing things perfectly makes us a good person or we're doing well well done lucinda and lucy <laughs> squirrel uh, somebody's listening to the audio they wonder what what has just happened um it's going down well tony thank you joy exactly so uh, you have to decide if you want perfectionism or joy because you can't have both. Um, what things can you do with perfectionism? Well, one of the things, because also in the drama triangle, we talked about victim, rescue and perpetrator. We can be that way to ourselves. We can give ourselves a hard time. We can be a perpetrator to ourselves. Like we do something, oh, look, I've just done a little picture. And then our perpetrator, our internal perpetrator goes, that's awful. Why are you doing that? That's rubbish. Yeah. So we can run and then we can feel a victim. And so we can even have these <laughs> internal conversations with ourselves where we're running the drama triangle as well. Um, perfection is quite a big subject, but I so we'll talk about it a little bit because I'll be talking about codependency. But it's something you want to sort because it really it's it stunts your life. It really makes life hard because uh, you're so hard on yourself and and you extinguish joy wherever it is uh julie says i've never been a rescuer uh it makes me feel resentful even the thought of it um sharon says this other guy uh, I, I was just the other day rescued a homeless guy from an island in the middle of the road had a chat with him but found out he was not okay to be he was okay to not be rescued yeah um First thing you need to do is is to check in with someone and say, you know, do you want to, um, do you want help? You know, and what kind of help do you want? Because endless help is not going to really get them what they want. What we need to do is, is to empower them. Yeah. And remember the first rule of coaching, maybe somebody can pop down the first rule of coaching. First rule of coaching is only give coaching when there is a request for coaching. If there's no request for coaching, then at that point it starts to be interference. Uh, <laughs> says, I remember you said, if you run perfectionism, you go straight to jail. You do not pass go. You do not collect £200. Excellent. <laughs> so let me talk a little bit about codependency, because I think that would be a, an interesting thing to, to cover. It's very much related to uh, the drama triangle. Classic example of codependency is... You're a little kid and uh, you go home and your mum, let's say your mum's an alcoholic. And uh, what is the first thing you do when you go home? 
Well, you need to know what state mum's in, okay? Is she happy? Is she drunk? Is she sleepy drunk? Is she violent drunk? Is she victim drunk? Is she sad drunk? Is she sober? Don't know. So the first thing we've got to do when we get home as a little kid is check in. What's what's mum doing? Check in. Okay, like the meerkat again. And that does increase our level of adrenaline called soul because we are on alert suddenly, on alert. If mummy is happy, we play. But we know, of course, at any point she could switch, she could change. And we learn that quite early because we get it wrong sometimes. So we play, but at the same time, we have half an ear and an eye out for change. Yeah. <clears throat> so the kid learns that in order to keep the adult happy, the child needs to manage the other person. So their needs and their emotional state are not as important as the person they're taking care of. And this, of course, leads to quite a good rescuing pattern at an early age. Excellent Aisha is learning not to rush in to rescue people until they ask for help. And even when they ask for help, you want to find out what kind of help they want. Uh, whether this is a long-term contract that being paid where you just turn up and take care of them or if you are helping them, genuinely helping them to move into a different phase in their lives. So with the codependency, what happens is people get uh, learnt into this behaviour of checking in with other people. How are they doing? And so they stop thinking about how do I feel and they start thinking about how do they feel and then they match their feelings. So if someone's happy, they'll be happy, if someone's sad, they'll be sad or try and take care of them, of course, rescuing. So rescuing codependency have quite a good kind of uh, historical heritage together. There is a link also between, oh, and also I should say, um, with codependency, you don't have to have an alcoholic mother. It can just be somebody who is quite changeable that you're having to think about and, and a little bit disruptive in their behavior. That could be a sibling, could be a twin, could be a friend. Many, I'm sure many people on the call will have diff had difficult friendships when they were kids with somebody who needed a lot of taking care of. And then at, at the start, that feels like a lovely thing. It's like you're needed and you're required. And after a while, you start to find out that you're uh, busy all the time trying to manage them. Okay. And also, these people are quite attractive in lots of ways. They're quite, you know, dramatic and interesting, and and, and interested in you. Okay. Uh, at what point do you have to sever a relationship because the other person's being too dependent on you? Well, it doesn't mean you have to sever it, but you need to have a conversation about. Uh, one of the things is to distinguish: is this a friendship, or is this become a, a non-paying therapeutic relationship where your job is just to take care of them the whole time? Uh, and you think about maybe using that given given that, given that this is all this way, who do you want to be? If you can have that conversation with them. If you can't have the conversation with, with them, you might have to say to them, listen, this isn't really functioning as a relationship um, because you know, you're always asking stuff from me, I'm always giving it, and, and that's not really what friendships are. It has to be more two-way than that. Um, so I'm just gonna pause this relationship until you feel ready to kind of come to it in an equal place. That's one way you can do it. But of course, if somebody's really sitting in victim role, then they'll go, oh, I knew I couldn't trust you and you'd let me down. As we talked about last time, they will try and push, push your buttons and they'll know you. 
So they'll, they'll go, oh, Lisa's a really kind person. So they say, oh, only a really deeply unkind person, push, would do that kind of thing, Lisa. And then Lisa will crumble and go, I'm not that kind of person. I'll take care of you for another few years. Um, perfectionism, you come home from school uh, with a report card and you've got like six A's and then one, uh, one B. If that person you're talking to is in a big bad place, then guess which bit they'll point to. They'll say, what's this B? Maybe slap you. And then you'll learn, oh, I thought I did well, but I can't trust what I think I need to do better. And so perfectionism can spring from these kind of relationships. I'm going to pause in a second because I think the internet has finally died. But what I want you to think about is think about where in your life is the drama triangle going on? Where are you being a victim? Where is other, other people being a victim? What do you need to be? Um, who do you need to be to step out of that? or possibly to help other people step out of it. Because spending your time in that place is not gonna help you. I'm gonna close the call now. I hope you found it useful in spite of the technical uh, nightmares. Um, you take care now and we'll see you on the next Tuesday. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and the Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker.